1: Good evening, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This, as you can see from the title, is our interview with our newly elected president of Latvia, Edgar Strinkevich. I do have to admit, I didn't pay him justice when I was talking uh, about him in the episode with Juris Kaja. He exceeded my expectations, massively. For starters, we finally have a president that can actually speak fluent English again, which is great. And also, I truly enjoyed his takes on many philosophical issues, especially ones concerning about this whole post-Soviet mentality, the inner monument of occupation that we have to demolish. And also, well, his attitude towards foreign policy and internal struggles. I hope he really succeeds at what he said that he's aiming to do here, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. I think that for you who are not Latvians, this will be interesting because we also speak a lot about what do we want to talk about to Westerners and how's diplomacy like? Because for now, well he used to be our Minister of Foreign Affairs, so he's gonna be doing the same diplomacy but from a different status. And to our Latvian people, strangely enough the most requested question was the one that I asked first to warm things up. What is it that Mr Rinkevich listens while he walks around the streets with his big headphones? But I don't know. It was a very warm discussion. It was a bit cold at the beginning, but then we opened up and it went really well, I think, especially by the end. So, without further ado, here we go. Good morning, Mr. President-elect. I presume I'll just call you Mr. President from now on because that's just too wordy for for the show. How are you feeling in this morning and, uh, well, what was the first feeling after you became elected as our new president?
2: Very good morning and thank you very much for having me. I wouldn't say that there is any kind of specific feeling, because as soon as you end kind of election campaign, and election campaign in a parliamentary democracy is a bit different from the campaigns that the United States or the countries that have presidents elected in general elections is over, then you start planning your next period. You have plenty of issues, and apart from that, you still are also the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and still there are many pending issues that I have to address also in this capacity. So I wouldn't say that there is any particular specific feeling. Well,
1: then I have to ask you the question, which is the most popular among my Latvian audience. A lot of people have seen you walking down the streets of Riga with these big headphones, just like mine. And uh, when I asked my followers on Twitter to give you some questions maybe... The number one was, what are you listening to, Mr. President? Uh,
2: well, I have Spotify collections, many of those, and uh, I listen, let's say, very different kind of music from classics, uh, easy listening to uh, sometimes um, also jazz and, and rock. So there is no any specific style. So it depends on the mood on the day, morning or evening, or let's say uh, also some kind of very specific uh, issues. I sometimes also listen to podcasts as well. It's not only about music, it's also about uh, listening news or, or podcasts that you can find on Spotify. Thank you.
1: Now, about more serious issues. We just had our, so far, biggest Pride event, and a lot of people also want to know what does this election mean for gay rights in Latvia? Does it mean anything? Is this a signal that maybe our time is ready to take up marriage equality finally?
2: Well, I think that uh, we do have a very specific and and complex situation right now. On one hand, there has been a debate about... uh, Partnership legislation. Parliament has rejected it twice. Not this parliament that has been elected last October, but previous parliament uh, almost did that. We have the discussion about uh, rights, equal rights, and we also have some history. You mentioned Pride that happened last Saturday. I still remember that the first Pride back in 2005-2006 was just a very small group of people uh, that were uh, attacked by much bigger crowds than actually uh, those who were marching for their rights and there was a very heavy police presence. There is still police presence today but uh, those people who are marching, those numbers have grown uh, and also I think that uh, public attitude is changing, changing dramatically. I've been myself elected in the parliament three times in general elections. I do believe that it is time for the parliament and government to adopt specific package of bills or one bill that really depends on how the parliament sees it, that uh, legally protects all kinds of partnerships, including same-sex partnerships. When it comes to marriage, it's more complicated because uh, there is an article in the Constitution that has been voted, also back in 2005 or six, I don't remember exactly, that states that marriage is between uh, man and woman. And here, of course, to change that constitutional uh, provision, you need two-thirds of the Parliament, which I believe uh, is not going to happen in this Parliament or soon enough so. There is incremental progress when it comes to the rights. There is more acceptance in the society, but we are not even close to the situation where I would be able to say everything is just uh, okay. But I am happy to see the progress as it has developed. Uh, And of course, I think that uh, for many people in community, my election also means a lot. And I Try to use my presence in the government or in this position also to tell to the broader public that look, being gay doesn't mean that uh, you are not able to perform your duties as the minister or hopefully in the future as the president in the normal way.
1: I find it interesting how so many people defend so-called traditional values and traditional families, yet at the same time we also have issues ratifying. Istanbul Convention as well, which is there to protect women's rights, including in traditional marriages. At the same time, we have a lot of people who are against same-sex marriage and against this Istanbul Convention. Do you aim as president to do something to maybe popularize the exception of this convention in our parliament or, or work towards that? Because, frankly speaking, that is a bit of a problem in Latvia. You know, many women have complained about this, including Meditor. So, this also, I think, is a major internal issue. What
2: are your thoughts on this matter? Well, I think that one thing that we lack is a normal, respectful dialogue. Because what we get from time to time that uh, those people who are uh, against the ratification of Istanbul Convention, or those people who are against, and I will use here uh, specifically the term, Equal partnership rights, not so much marriage, as I said. Uh, there are provisions in the Constitution that uh, uh, we have to respect because they are in the Constitution. And uh, those who are, let's say, very much in favor of the ratification and also in favor of uh, of equal rights, uh, sometimes they clash not so much in a rational way, but in a very irrational way. But I've been always uh, underlying that for me, the partnership legislation or Istanbul Convention is not so much about ideologies or politics. It's about purely legal matters. If we say that all people are equal under the Constitution, then all people, all families, all partnerships need to be also legally protected. If we say that we see that there are specific challenges, and there are specific challenges in Latvia when it comes to women and, and girls' rights, then uh, we do believe, and I do believe, that uh, ratification of Istanbul Convention would actually improve some of the legal standards. Uh, we've been discussing about Istanbul Convention already for years. Uh, according to the constitution, president is not entitled to submit uh, treaties or conventions for the ratification. That's the government's job. But what I've said during our uh, election campaign, when I was discussing this issue with uh, two of my opponents, who were also running for the presidency, I said that I am ready and I will do that. I'm ready to facilitate dialogue within the parliament, Within the government, uh, I'm going also to talk with the minister of welfare, who is responsible for submitting uh, the convention to the parliament, and also with minister of justice, how we can actually move forward. I can't exclude that probably, if we come as far, we can also do what some countries that have ratified this convention have done, put some kind of notice that nothing in this convention is against the Constitution of Latvia, which, by the way, has been already ruled by our Constitutional Court. Our Constitutional Court has said that the Istanbul Convention is fully in line with the Constitution of Latvia. The problem sometimes is that just to calm down some of those opponents, you need to also find a way how you can move forward with the ratification, at the same time addressing their concerns in a respectful way just making a lot of noise and controversial statements, those are not going to help rather the women's rights or gay rights or, or any rights.
1: And uh, I want to ask you the final question about our internal politics here. How do you foresee the future with our ethnic Russian population or more precisely Russian-speaking population within our country? Will, will we be able to mend some schisms caused in the past? Do you see a way how we can maybe... I don't know heal the wounds
2: of the past that's a very good and uh, I would say very complicated question I'm I'm afraid I will use the rest of the podcast to talk about that but on a serious note I think that a watershed moment that we had was of course February 21st 2022 the Russian invasion full scale invasion in Ukraine has shown that uh, Russian population or non latvian population, whatever term is used, is quite divided. You have, according to the opinion polls, quarter of uh, those supporting Ukraine, quarter supporting Russia and what Mr. Putin does in uh, Ukraine, and you have uh, the rest undecided or confused or not willing to give the answer. Uh, I think that uh, there are a couple of Policies that need to be advanced, and I'm, I'm ready to do that. First of all, we need to have a very clear rules. Those who are in favor of values that we share, the Latvian constitution, uh, Western values, those who are condemning uh, Russia's imperial policies, regardless what is their native language, they are our guys. Then, second, we need to fight for hearts and minds of those who are still undecided or confused. I think that some of those measures have been already implemented banning Russian propaganda outlets, Uh, but it's not enough. Uh, One needs to talk with those people to convince them that this is not Russia, this is Latvia, part of NATO and European Union and part of the West, and it's your choice. If you want to be part of the Latvian community, we welcome you with open arms. And then there is this group that I've described, those who are backing Russian aggression. Uh, and I, here I think that uh, you simply have to say that, uh, look, if you do that, the whatever kind of, sometimes we call this clarification of the russian aggression will not be tolerated uh, and the law enforcement is going to address those issues another thing i still hope that uh, our education reform that uh, provides the complete transition to the latvian language as the only language in our schools will be successful it takes time it takes also uh, time to get uh, first results but I also believe that uh, one thing that we all need to do is to have more dialogue. Unfortunately, during the wartime, this is not very easy because whenever people here in Latvia see uh, atrocities committed by the Russian troops in Ukraine, all those horrific videos and pictures that sometimes pop up on social media and online, those things actually also puts a lot of emotion here. And uh, it is very difficult during the wartime to deal with some rational and pragmatic policies when you have so much justified emotion. So talking, addressing, trying to consolidate those who are our people to have this very respectful dialogue is something that the presidency can do and will do.
1: Another question is, of course, in relation to the war, our NATO infrastructure in Latvia. Should we either match the air capacity of Estonia or the port cap- logistics capacity of Sweden? Now that, as we see, Rega is becoming much more viable supply avenue, as soon Sweden will join NATO and Finland already has, thus supplying for our region can be done from Sweden, not from Germany. Therefore, I think we might have to expand some bases or ports. Do you see any progress in this direction? How we could deepen our ties with our Western partners.
2: Well, you know, after uh, decisions taken by NATO heads of state and government in Madrid, and we are approaching Vilnius summit, there are very specific homeworks that Latvia have to do. One is uh, really uh, an issue of the new base and training ground, because uh, the more NATO allies are arriving, the more infrastructure we need. Second, uh, yes, this is also related to uh, host nation support issues, also uh, related to military mobility issues, related to military infrastructure. Uh, We see that there are some good steps, for instance, building Rail Baltica that can be used not only for civilian, but also for uh, some defense-related purposes. I know that the Ministry of Defense is working also on broadening our... uh, both port and, and uh, airfield capacities. We are developing our military airfield in Lievarde. Riga, Vanspils and Liepāja also as ports uh, are being used and will be used for uh, necessary reinforcements if they can be done. But also, let's look at the map in a bit broader sense. One thing is, of course, that we all understand, and just recently both Latvia and Estonia signed uh, a declaration or memorandum of understanding about uh, joint procurement of air defense system. We know and we see what is happening in Ukraine, that air defense is critical to protect both civil population and troops, but second, also to protect ports and, and, and airfields in case if we need reinforcements but the second issue is that uh, we also understand that we need to address what we call Sovalki Gap that's uh, land uh, road between um, Poland and, and Lithuania and so I would say this is a bit more complex issue that only to look at uh, uh, maritime or, 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 or air Capacities. But uh, as far as I am informed and know a bit about the work that uh, our Ministry of Defense is doing, I would say they are well on track. They know what needs to be done to uh, work closely with uh, port authorities and also airport and airfield authorities to, to make sure that in case of the need, reinforcements or Whatever ammunition or or equipment is needed can come here. But it's also related with the NATO defense planning because uh, if you want to get something in, you also need to secure airspace and also to be sure that your coast is well defended and coastal defense is well developed.
1: And a related question to this. We all know that Ukraine is planning. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live.
2: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: As soon as possible to join the European Union and NATO. And they also see us here in the Baltics as one of their closest allies. It's us in the Baltics and Poland and, well, United Kingdom in a sense, but United Kingdom's not in the EU anymore. Do you plan on facilitating the entry of Ukraine into the European Union, and if so, how? And what could be the biggest barriers that they should overcome to join the EU faster? And that's besides the military front here, just in general.
2: Indeed, we have been supporting Ukraine as a EU candidate country uh, since very beginning. Uh, actually, the Baltic presidents, the Polish president. Some colleagues in EU were the first ones to publicly endorse Ukraine as a EU candidate country and I'm happy that last June that decision was taken by the European Council. Uh, now we are waiting for the first European Commission report on the progress of Ukraine as a candidate. However, I do believe that uh, Ukraine has done already so much that we can start accession talks with Ukraine by the end of this year. That goes to the EU uh, business. Uh, what would be the biggest obstacle, like it or not? But uh, Ukraine is in a very unique position. Uh, in order to become EU member state, you must do a lot of reforms. You have to readjust your legislation, your economy, your social system to that of the European Union. At the same time, there is war going on. And to do that during the wartime is enormous challenge. So I think that what Ukraine has done so far is simply a remarkable thing. And what the EU needs to do, and also Latvia, to help Ukraine with everything we have, not only when it comes to the military aid, but also uh, sending advisors to advance reform process uh, to provide necessary financial investment or both reconstruction of Ukraine, but also modernization of some of the systems and, of course, uh, political support when it comes to the European Union internal discussion. So all those things are uh, relevant, Uh, all those things are where we work together with like-minded nations within the European Union. But I would refrain of saying when Ukraine could become EU member state.
0: Hello there and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going, and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay On the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Comeback Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage, comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters. Every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military, Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember, you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening. Keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online.
1: this question comes from our diaspora. Seeing as in Latvia we have our demographical issues, which also need to be solved, and diaspora is growing due to how our Latvian citizenship works, and due to the fact that populations in those countries are, in general, growing. Therefore, taking into account also our low activity among the electorate, seems to me that the diaspora votes are becoming much more important every election as they pass so people have asked me what is your plan to maybe engage them and educate them about our political processes here in latvia maybe even i don't know make make them repatriate here because this is going to become an issue in, in the near future and sometimes as far as i've heard these people feel that uh, they've been sort of forgotten especially those in brazil and in the united
2: states this is a very good question first of all i think in the 21st century, uh, the global mobility is such that some people simply decide that they will move somewhere to work for some time and to live for some time outside of Latvia, and then they come back. There are, of course, people who left during the financial crisis or because they believed that uh, the working conditions somewhere in European Union uh, are are better, and they are right. But many of the representatives of diaspora are still very active. As the foreign minister have been visiting, have visited uh, a lot of countries, I've met with representatives of diaspora. The last visit was Iceland, where we have also, I would say, quite big uh, Latin community. Uh, there is school, there is a theater working, Uh, So those Latvians who want to stay engaged, they they do that. On the other hand, uh, indeed, if you look at programs that we have, uh, support for cultural activities, educational activities, those are, I will not say, extremely well financed, but those are financed. The government provides that kind of support. However, I think that uh, it is very important and here I agree with those who have asked this question, that somehow political parties, political class, need to be more engaged with diaspora, not only just a couple of weeks or or months before elections. When many of uh, politicians are moving around, meeting diaspora, promising a lot of things, and then disappearing. Uh, But also during the kind of normal period of political cycle. Uh, Second, uh, about uh, some practicalities of uh, what it's called immigration or repatriation. I don't know what's uh, the exactly best term to describe it in English. Uh, I've talked with some of uh, leaders of local communities here. Uh, We desperately need people back because labor market has huge deficit and what we have detected in our discussions with both representatives of diaspora but also local governments one uh, need to have a decent apartment or house one needs to have school or kindergarten one needs to have some initial support when the family comes back and i think that those are things that uh, regardless where i am let's say in six months from now, the government need to address. To make those programs uh, more specifically targeted to address the needs of those who are willing to come back. By the way, if statistics are right, and you always have to be very, very careful with statistics, the numbers of those who are coming back are increasing. Those are not thousands or tens of thousands. But those numbers are growing. And to find a way how to support them is important, especially uh, those families with kids and with kids who are in schools. Because if you come from UK or from, I don't know, Germany or or the United States, the education system is different. And for kids to get adapted, sometimes the the school or, or teachers need to spend more time with those as, as normally one could imagine. Then, uh, well, a lot, of course, also depends on activity of diaspora organizations. You said that some uh, people in, in Brazil or the United States feel a bit abandoned, but I would say the this kind of communication is a uh, two-way street. You need not only the government or president being engaged, but also you need a very strong very active uh, association or, uh, or uh, society or community of Latvians who are reaching out. And here I would say that I would expect also um, more active uh, engagement from the from diaspora so that this is two-way street.
1: And most are the subject of communication. On this show... My show started out as trying to explain how it was like to live in the Soviet Union to Western audiences. First episodes were specifically about how it was like to serve in the Soviet Army and everyday life I gathered stories from the people. Then it's been hard work for me to translate a lot of things into English and to explain our position and our views. And before the war started, I had been called various names, including paranoid and, 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 you know, fear mongering. But there is still some issue about how to explain this. And I don't like this word, but I don't know how to even better describe all of our nations, the former Soviet countries, which is not exactly maybe correct, but how do you describe this whole region? What would be the thing that you would like the Western audiences to understand most about our region, about all these countries that were a part of the Soviet Union, and how we view the world, and what scars this whole occupation period of being in the Soviet Union has left us. What is the thing you believe that they
2: should understand about us? Actually, you answered this question already, partly. Uh, First of all, uh, yes, from time to time I have to struggle with this kind of former Soviet Republic of Latvia or former Soviet Republic of Estonia or Lithuania. And then... uh, Not only me, but many of my colleagues here in Latvia or in other Baltic states get a bit ballistic saying, no, we were occupied by the Soviet Union. Uh, Sometimes uh, I have to spend a lot of time to explain to my colleagues some parts of history. Just recently I met with one very good friend and colleague from, from Asia, whom I actually had to read a short Uh, history uh, lesson of of Latvia explaining why we are so much supporting Ukraine. Because children deportations that Russians are doing in Ukraine, deportation of the people, uh, destruction of uh, towns uh, and cities in Ukraine, very much remind what uh, Soviets did back in 1941, 1949, during uh, their occupation here in Latvia and in the Baltics. Uh, So... uh, From that point of view, yes, we still need to start with some basics in history. And not only in a global audience, but I would say also in the European audience. And uh, to remind about uh, some of those things we have done. So uh, from my perspective, the best way how to describe region we live in is either the Baltics or northeast of Europe. I would say that one thing is very important to remind to the people that uh, we would be let's say in the same level of economic, political and social development as Finland or Sweden or Denmark if the Baltic states went occupied by the Soviet Union. on the other hand, it is also sometimes, and we also had this discussion about the Istanbul Convention about equal uh, rights to to everyone or partnership legislation including same-sex partners. Sometimes it takes enormous time and effort also to bring those understandings that the normal Western society has already for years into this part of the world. So again, this is a bit two-way street. You can't only blame history. You also have to look into the future. And from that point of view... I think that uh, this is going to be continuous work with uh, the global audience uh, to remind about our history, to explain why we are having those policies, especially when it comes to support of Ukraine, but also uh, to say that uh, we are more future-oriented than, let's say, many of uh, countries in what we call the Soviet, uh, former Soviet space. Uh,
1: yes, Mr. President, thank you. You touched on to the subject that would be my last question to you, because I consider that important, but you already touched upon us. I always say that, um, as I felt growing up, me being born in 1989, as a one of those Atmo, the children, I always felt like my parents' generation wanted our generation, my generation, to build this bright future, this capitalism and this more free society. However, at the same time, they always insisted that we keep those Soviet values. It's kind of confusing if you think about it. And now that we have removed our monument of occupation, uh, this Soviet victory monument, it came to my mind that we might have removed the outer symbols, but it's the, the occupation monument inside of our own heads that's hard to remove. I think this should be addressed. And you, well, seem to be one of a one of the people in the best positions in our country to aid this process. And, well, I, I understand that you are concerned about this, but what is your view about how do we move on as a society? How do we get rid of this Soviet legacy, first and foremost, in our own minds?
2: It's a very good very good question. I think that for many Uh, of those people who started this singing revolution back in uh, 1988 uh, or called Atmod or Awakening those people wanted to restore Latvia as we lost it back in 1939-1940 for a very good reason because I think that uh, my own uh, grandparents and and parents uh, my parents were young kids when the Soviets marched in very young kids, but they, of course, grew up from stories that they heard from their moms and dads. They wanted to, to continue exactly where our independence was interrupted. And, of course, we had those 50 years of the Soviet occupation when there was a dream about independent Latvia, but when realities came with the dream, we had a complete... Mix up of 1990s. A bit of free uh, market and capital, uh, market and capitalism, uh, a bit of those kind of Soviet traditions and not the best ones, and then of course the kind of Western values that were coming in. Uh, Is this process an easy one to get rid of the Soviet past and to get rid of Soviets inside of yourself? No. But if you compare where we were in 1990s with where we are in 2023, let's not also underestimate remarkable progress. There is already the generation that now uh, is born in, in free Latvia. Uh, those who were born, you said, 1989. Uh, the head of my office is uh, born in 1991, so exactly when... Uh, one year after the declaration of the regaining of independence and one year after that uh, declaration later regained independence de facto so there is completely new generation and i think that uh, the only way how we can actually uh, move from this soviet past inside of all of us uh, to this more european more western civilization is simply sometimes openly, sometimes it is painful for some people, discussing things, uh, discussing uh, the collaboration of many uh, Latvians during the Soviet occupation period with the Communist Party, but also saying, okay, we as the free society need to adopt also those standards, be it economic, social or political and also truly implement those and it's not only about human rights it's also about rule of law it's also about democracy it's also about uh, opening up to the world as much as we can but uh, it's going to take still time it's still very uneasy for those people who have lived and worked in the Soviet Union to understand that uh, being free And prosperous society doesn't mean simply to change the flag or to put uh, some things first and to forget those. So what I'm going to do with all my, let's say, experience and also I hope the political, uh, not much legal, but political power of the office, simply to facilitate that process. To say goodbye to the past. Thank you, Mr. President. And
1: to wish you the best of luck, I will say goodbye to you with our current tagline, which we use all the time. Happiness is mandatory.
0: Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv and leave a comment there or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory.